Father, thank you for bringing so many into this church to support the needs that you bring us. Thank you, Father, for the wisdom, the strength of character, the perspective of our elders, of those of age in here, Father, who can teach others what they have learned. Thank you, Father, for the energy and for the passion of those who are younger and leading families and leading in their workplace. Thank you, Father, for the leadership that comes from them. Thank you, Father, for the the excitement and the hope of the children that we have and for all that they bring us in reminding us, Father, of childlike faith and of a desire to please the Lord as they seek to please their parents. I thank you for the many walks of life in here, Father. I thank you for the many experiences you've given us, how wise you've been, Father, to equip us in so many ways. And, Father, I know you've equipped us in some things that we haven't even struck out to do yet. Don't let us squander the resources you've given us. Give us a heart and a courage and a, and a desire to serve in every way possible. And, Father, one of the most important things we do every week, as you know, is to stand before you and put the word in front of us and listen to your voice through the Spirit so that we may be properly equipped for these things, so that we may be guided by the lamp that is the Word of God. And that we would not endeavor, Father, to merely support the physical needs of people, but we would be there also, Father, to support those spiritual needs, those eternal needs. Equip us for that as well. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most dangerous things God can do for us in the course of our walk of faith is to reveal some detail about his plan for our lives. If God dares to tell us about where he wants us to go, where he's going to take us, what he plans to do with us, then the risk he's taking is that a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. And with what we think we know about what God is doing, with what revelation he may provide to us, we begin to run ahead of him. We begin to think that because I've got a little bit of an understanding, I've got enough. And with that understanding, I can take it from here, God. And I'll check back in if I get in trouble. In effect, we leave God behind. There's a great story about a middle-aged woman who had a heart attack and was taken to the hospital, a Christian woman. And while she's on the operating table, she has this near-death experience. And in her experience, she sees who she believes to be the Lord. And she says to the Lord, is my time up? Am I now being called home? And the Lord responds saying, no, you have another 43 years, two months and eight days to live out your life. From there, she wakes up in her hospital bed and realizes she's not going to die. But after hearing what she heard in that vision, the woman decides that if she's going to live that much longer, she might as well make the most of it. So while she's in the hospital, she has a facelift and liposuction, a tummy tuck and a few other things. She even has her hair color changed. She figures I'll be in the best possible shape to make it through the rest of those 43 years. As she's released from the hospital and she's crossing the road, out of nowhere appears this bus, knocks into her and kills her. Well, the next moment she's in heaven with the Lord and standing before him, totally confused, and she demands that he answer her question. He says, I thought you said that I had 43 more years. Why didn't you rescue me from out of the path of that bus? And the Lord replied, well, I didn't recognize you. When you run ahead of God, <laughs> I'm going to turn this back to the sermon somehow. When you, when you run ahead of God, you take God out of the driver's seat of your life and you, you have him ride shotgun. You put him in the passenger seat and you take the wheel. That's the mindset I think we adopt 
when we believe or think we know what God's doing in our life, what he's called us to do. And now that we have that glimmer, that glimpse of what we're to do, we try to take over. We start trying to drive. What we expect from God at that point is a little navigation along the way. You know how that navigator works, right? Recalculating. When you get to the point where you've done a little more or a little less than you should, you assume God will just step in and, of course, correct here and there. The way I often hear it expressed is we pick the plan and then we pray for God to bless it. And that is the danger with thinking that we know where God is going. What we are to do instead, according to Scripture, is allow God to set the course, allow God to direct our steps and join him in the work that he is already at work doing. Jacob is basically at this kind of a moment in his life. In fact, he's been there for a while. God has set him outside the land of Canaan now for 20 years. And in those 20 years, he experienced God in a variety of ways, working in his life. He has seen the Lord at work. He's even recognized that the Lord was the one doing the work. We've already heard him testify in previous chapters that he knew God was protecting him. God was giving him provision. Last week, we saw him confronted by Laban. And in that passionate speech he gives Laban, he declares, God has been the only thing standing between me and ruin at your hand. Jacob knows God is in the car, so to speak. Jacob has acknowledged God is sitting next to me in the passenger seat. He is believing that God is at work navigating in this journey of life that he has set Jacob on. But what Jacob has yet to do is take the next step of spiritual maturity and in that next step recognize that God's not just riding shotgun. God has his hands on the wheel. God is driving. And Jacob tries to take control of his own life and do things according to his own way. He resorts to things like deception, to trickery, to scheming, fighting against God rather than working with God. But Jacob doesn't perceive it that way. That's the problem. The problem is Jacob sees himself in the driver's seat rather than where he really is, which is on the side, grabbing the wheel that God's steering and fighting against God, wrestling with God as God is trying to direct his life. Chapter 32, which is where we go today. This chapter exists in the record of Genesis and in the story of Jacob precisely to show us how God finally gets Jacob to understand this point, to get his attention and to cause him to realize he has to follow God. He isn't in control of his own life. Look at verse one, starting there. Genesis 32, one. Now, as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. So he named that place Mahanaim. So let's set the stage here for what's going to happen in this chapter. Jacob is headed westward. Remember last week we noted that he had gone from Laban's home in Haran all the way back or was trying to go back to Canaan. He had made it as far as the hill country of the Gilead and stopping there had had that confrontation with Laban. Now that has happened. And now it's time for Laban or for Jacob rather to continue on westward into the land of Canaan. And as he travels, God gives Jacob this vision of angels essentially escorting him into the promised land. In seeing the angels, Jacob declares that this location is God's camp. And the word he used to name this place, Mahanaim, it literally means two camps. It's the plural of camp in Hebrew. What he's saying is God's camp has joined my camp in this journey. That's what he means by this name. Now, why does God bring Jacob this vision now? Let's start with why is God doing this? Well, you may remember God gave Jacob a very similar vision of angels as he left the promised land. 
those 20 years earlier. And so now as Jacob is preparing to re-enter this same land, Jacob gets a second vision of angels. The message would seem to be then a similar message in both cases. We know what the purpose of the first message was because God actually spoke to Jacob at that time and explained it to him. Jacob left the land under uncertain circumstances, fearful of his life, fearful of what he was leaving and fearful of what he would find where he was going and without any confidence that he'd ever come home. So God appears with angels speaking to Jacob, reassuring him, if you go, you will come back and I will be with you and I will keep you this whole time. So now Jacob reenters the land. But interestingly, he comes back under similar circumstances. He has a lot of uncertainty about what he's going to find when he gets back. Remember why he left the first time? Esau, his brother, the one he had purportedly cheated out of the birthright, was seeking to harm him, seeking to kill him. So he was running from Esau. Well, it's been 20 years. He doesn't know what he'll find when he gets back. Does Esau still bear a grudge? Is Esau ready to pounce on him as soon as he finds out that Jacob is back in the land? And so he's concerned. And God appears through these angels once again and reassures everything is under control. You will have safe passage. These angels are my evidence to prove that to you. How does Jacob interpret this vision? Jacob says that God's camp has joined my camp. And the sense of that statement in Hebrew is God has sent me reinforcements because the word camp in Hebrew is maknecha, and it literally means army. God's army joining my army, reinforcing me. We see Jacob's backward perspective here. I have a plan. God knows what I'm trying to do. God sent me some reinforcements to make sure I'm successful. I'm driving. God's in the passenger seat. And he just patted me on the shoulder and told me I'm driving the right way. Look what he does next if you don't think I'm right. Look at verse 3. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir in the country of Edom. He also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants. And I have sent to tell my Lord that I might find favor in your sight. The messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and furthermore, he is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed and divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. For he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. So before Jacob crosses the Jordan, he's still on the east side of the Jordan, but he's preparing to go into Canaan. And he must have assumed it was prudent to give his brother news of his arrival into the land. And that does make sense, at least from one perspective, because you wouldn't want to return into this land unannounced, having been gone now for 20 years and having left under bad circumstances. Because if you just showed up unannounced, you might wonder if your brother thought you were coming in like a sneak attack to try and attack him. In other words, you wouldn't want this guy to think you had bad intentions. For example, he instructs his servants to head southward. Now, you have to have a map in your mind here if you don't have one in your Bible. But about midway through the land of Israel, about even or so with Shechem, you have Jacob now on the east side of the Jordan preparing to cross. If you look on that map for the land of Seir, the mountains of Seir or the land of Edom, it's directly south of where he is right now. It's present day southern Jordan. So he's not going toward Esau when he crosses. He's actually going perpendicular to him, but he wants to give notice to Esau. So he sends messengers straight downward. 
But the plan itself reveals a lot about his thinking. The messengers are told to tell Esau this. Notice the language. First, they are to refer to Jacob as Esau's servant. And they are to refer to Esau as Jacob's Lord. Now, you and I may read that in a casual way to simply imply respect, courtesy, like you teach your kids to say sir or ma'am. Maybe that's all this is, but no, it's not. These words have loaded meaning, and he's using them for a reason. The second thing you should notice is Jacob is telling his servants, mention my wealth. Tell them I have a lot of stuff. Now, the purpose behind both of those special statements is obvious, isn't it? The whole intent here is to appease Esau, to show up in a way that should Esau still harbor some resentment against Jacob and some ill feelings, some hatred, perhaps Esau would be willing to make peace if he realizes that Jacob views him as his superior and if Jacob is willing to pay off a little of that hatred to compensate him for some of the harm that's been done in the past. That's the implication of these statements. That's what Jacob wants to see communicated. Can you see his thinking here? He needs to prepare his own way into the land. So he's got to pave the road himself. He has to defend himself or he won't be safe. And despite seeing the angels, he needs this in order to assure himself safety into the land, safe passage into the land. He's still driving the car, as I've been saying. So now what's God going to do in the face of this? Remember, God's already said, you have safe passage. Here is your angelic host helping you get into the land. Now, Jacob starts down this path, which is totally ill-advised and actually raises some serious problems. God begins, in a way, to work and get his attention. When the messengers come back, and I want you to notice this, the messengers come back with the message themselves. You can see God's fingerprints on this message. They tell Jacob, oh, Esau's coming, all right. Oh, and yeah, by the way, he's got 400 men coming with him. Now, what do you think that message does to Jacob? What's in his mind when he hears this? Naturally, he assumes the worst. This is not a greeting party of 400. These aren't 400 dancing girls. These are 400 guys coming to kill me. That's his assumption. Did this messenger say that? No, they never said anything about what was going to happen. They just mentioned the number. All he knows at this point is Esau is coming with a strong force to meet him, and he assumes it's to conquer him. He assumes this is payback. This is Esau trying to get even for those years that he's been waiting Now, what Jacob does in response proves that he has this glass half empty mentality, this I've got to save my own skin mentality. First, he decides to divide his force. Now, dividing one's force in the face of conflict only weakens your ability to withstand the attack. There is no natural rationale for doing that if you intend to engage in combat. You only make your own defeat more likely. And he even says, and I love this because it says so much about his thought, he says His purpose in the division is not to succeed in battle. His purpose in the division is to survive the failure, to come out of it with something as opposed to nothing. He's already assuming he's going to lose the battle. That's the whole point for the dividing. So he wants to leave some of his family sort of separated from the rest, assuming that these guys that are coming to attack won't be able to get to both of them. Somebody will get away. He's terrified and he clearly lacks any hope of surviving this attack. Now, did God bring a vision of angels to Jacob to give him confidence? Well, clearly, yes. And yet, here's Jacob, scared out of his wits, scheming some way to get out of the situation, assuming failure and planning for the worst. 
Now, Jacob is a man of faith. We know that. We're not suggesting he does not have faith, but it's clearly weak. The measure of your faith, according to Scripture, is not in some quantum. It's it's not as though I have 10% faith and you have 50% faith. Faith is an absolute. It is an all or nothing. Either you are a man or woman of faith, you know the living God through the Son that He provided, Jesus on the cross, you've come to believe in His sacrifice for your sin, and through that faith you are saved eternally. You are that or you are not. And with that faith comes the Holy Spirit, not 5% of the Holy Spirit, not 10%, not some varying amount. It is all or none. You have access to the Spirit or you have none. Jacob fits into the column of faith. We know that from the testimony of Scripture. But a weak faith is a faith that does not drive behavior. That's the whole essence of the book of James. Your strength of faith is proven in your behavior. To act according to faith is to have strength of faith. When the disciples tell Jesus, increase our faith, they're asking for him to give them greater courage to do the things he's asking them to do. This man has weak faith. He's a man who acknowledges God in his life. He's even been willing to recognize that God does great things for him. And yet, with each new challenge, he reverts to trusting in himself and assuming that God has just come along for the ride. And then finally, and maybe for the first time in his life, Jacob runs out of schemes. He's at the end of himself here. He has no hope. Remember, he's assuming his family is going to be destroyed. So what does every man or woman of faith, weak or not, what do we do when we finally run out of options of our own? We pray. Right? Prayer steps in at the moment when all our other options are done. Now, I'm not saying that's how it's supposed to be. But isn't that how it often works, right? The last escape is, God, I've driven this car as far as I can take it. Would you like to drive now? That's what prayer does. It hands the wheel back in a sense. It asks God to step in when we know we don't have the strength. So what does Jacob do? Look at verse 9. Jacob says, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. For you said... I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. So Jacob turns his face to God and cries out. And he says, deliver me. He makes a sincere confession of repentance. And then he asks God to keep his promises. He says, I'm an unworthy man. I'm unworthy of what you've done. That's true. He is. We all are. He reminds God of his promises. And in passing, I should note, that's never a bad thing to do in prayer. In fact, if you notice... Men of Scripture, as they pray, it's a common technique for them to remind God of His own word because God will keep His word. And so you're appealing to God's character. And then he puts his petition in front of God. He says, deliver me from Esau. He specifically asks for what is on his heart. Now, Jacob schemed and he planned and he bargained to get Esau's favor. And he feels as though all of that has failed. So now he turns to God and he asks God to handle it. May I ask whether he could have skipped the first part and gone directly to the second part? Do you think maybe that would have been a good solution as well? I mean, if the first part doesn't work anyway, why not go straight to the second part? Instead of making prayer the last thing, the last resort, maybe we ought to start there and stay there. 
And then, of course, as God directs in that prayer life, we act accordingly. I mean, if he gives us a specific step to take, of course, we listen and we do that. But it's in response to prayer. It's not in preparation to pray if our plan fails. I wonder sometimes if as a community of believers, as the church universal, if we're so prideful and foolish as to think that we ever really had control of the wheel in the first place. Because that's what Jacob has assumed, right? He's opened the driver's door and he's stepped out and he's asking God to slide over. The foolishness of that mentality is to assume you were ever in the driver's seat. Scripture would say you were in the car, you're in in a walk with God by faith, but you're not in control. I'm not in control of what God does and what happens in my life. The best I can hope to do is hold on for the ride and stay near the Lord as he directs. But when I do try to take over, I don't get in the driver's seat. As I mentioned earlier, I'm like the kid who reaches over unexpectedly and grabs onto the wheel while mom or dad are driving. It doesn't help the process. It doesn't improve the driving. God has our lives in his hands at all times. It's only our own self-deception that leads us to think it's any other way. So why has God allowed Jacob to know that Esau is coming with these 400 men? It would seem there's only one reason to bring Jacob to this crisis, this crisis of faith, this moment in which he can't help himself any longer, in which he feels hopeless. And in that moment, he finally turns to God and cries out for God to do what God was prepared to do all along. What God showed him he was going to do from the very beginning. Because God's goodness in this story has never been in doubt, nor has his faithfulness been in doubt to his promises. After all, he sent angels to reassure him both ends of the travel. And I also want you to notice something else he's done, something that's subtle, but it's evident in the text. Where did Esau live when Jacob left the land? In the land. And they left, they separated, they parted ways because Jacob had found a way to take the ownership of that land, the inheritance of that land, away from Esau. Now, we understand how that happened. We understand it was God's intent. We're not going to revisit that. But I want you to think about it from Esau's point of view. Esau didn't accept that outcome, did he? Or at least he didn't acknowledge it. He didn't like it. Right after that happened, Jacob gets out of town. He hasn't been back for 20 years Now, if you're Esau, what would you do? Wouldn't you stay in the land? Wouldn't you assume that your brother has essentially forfeited the right to what he took? Wouldn't you at least try to make a claim to it? And yet here's Jacob coming back in the land 20 years later. Where is Esau? He's in Edom. He's left the land. Now, I don't have to tell you that there's God at work in that. Clearing out the obstacles so that when Jacob is ready to return, he's not coming back to fight his brother again. He's coming back to a land that's been left for him by his brother. God is more than capable of fulfilling the promises he's given Jacob. And all the details line up to prove that. So what does a man of faith do after having prayed for God to intervene once he's run out of all options? What does a man do in that situation? Does he listen to Isaiah and remain still and know that I am the Lord? No, of course not. If you're Jacob, you go back to scheming. Verse 13. So he spent the night there. Then he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their colts, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys and a partridge in a pear tree. It sounds like that, doesn't it? The numbers just keep adding up. Verse 16. He delivered them into the hands of his servants, every drove by itself, 
and said to his servants, pass on before me and put a space between the droves. He commanded the one in front, saying, when my brother Esau meets you and asks you, saying, to whom do you belong and where are you going and to whom do these animals in front of you belong? Then you shall say, these belong to your servant, Jacob. It is a present sent to my Lord Esau and behold, he also is behind us. Then he commanded also the second and the third and all those who followed the drove, saying, after this manner, you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, Behold, your servant Jacob also is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me, and then afterward I will see his face, and perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on before him, while he himself spent that night in the camp. So Jacob made this wonderful appeal to the Lord. It seemed like he had turned a corner, right? He sleeps on it, and then the next morning he's back to planning. That's us. You have the requisite moment of prayer. You do your duty as a Christian, and then it's back to doing it yourself because our minds are wired to figure out our own problems. And there's a time for that. There's certainly a time to work hard. But once you've come to the end of yourself and you've turned it over to God, don't get back engaged. Let him handle it. But not Jacob. He takes a large quantity of his best animals. If you add it up, it's 500 animals. He takes 500 animals. Then he instructs his servants to create this line stretching to the horizon. This is a lavish gift, folks. This represents maybe two to three years of of work to earn. This is a hugely expensive gift. It not only shows us how prosperous Jacob has become, but it also shows us how desperate he is to win over Esau, how worried he really is. Now, the animals are grouped into like kinds. So all of the one animal type are together, and then all the next animal type, and so on. And they're all stretched out with space between them in a line stretching from Jacob to the direction that Esau is coming from. They're a welcoming party for Esau. And with each group, what Jacob hopes will happen is Esau will encounter the group, hear this statement that he's prepared each servant with, be enamored by the gift, receive it into his, into his own flock, into his own company. And then as he continues to move forward, there's another one. Oh, and then there's another one. This guy Jacob's awesome. I can't believe it. And by the time he gets to Jacob, he's just thrilled. That's the intent. And Jacob even says it, right? He says, I'm hoping that this will appease Esau. The word, therefore, present, where he says this will be a present for Esau, in Hebrew, that word, mincha, mincha, it literally means an offering or a tribute. This is an offering to Esau. Later in verse 20, when Jacob tells the servants that this is to appease Esau, the word for appease in, in Hebrew is kafar. Do you know that word? Kafar. It's the word for atonement. It's the same word used in Leviticus when we hear about atonement being given on the altar in the tabernacle. He feels that he is having to atone. To appease here means to create a propitiation for what he may have done to Esau. With his back against the wall, he has the weight of a repentant heart, and he's seeking to make amends for his deceits to Esau. And the animals are part of that process and the words are part of that process. All that he's doing here communicates to Esau and to us that he feels guilty for having taken the birthright. He is sorry that he upset his brother and he certainly doesn't want his brother to take it out on him. Now, there are problems with what he's doing here. Remember, the birthright inheritance always includes the patriarchal leadership role in the family. If you have the birthright you also inherit the right to be the head cheese, the big guy, the honcho of the family. No other member of the clan 
of the tribe has any authority except you. You run the show. That's part of what the inheritance offers. That's one of the reasons why it's so important. And in this culture, that meant that everyone who was not the patriarch was automatically a servant to the patriarch. And so the titles that you hear mentioned here were the titles that would have been used. To Jacob, if he is the patriarch, he is Lord, and everyone who is not Jacob is the servant of that Lord. That's one of the reasons why you see Sarah referring to Abraham as my Lord at times. She's simply reflecting the fact he's the patriarch of the family. So when Jacob tells Esau, I am your servant, you are my Lord, what is Jacob saying? Jacob is saying, you can have the birthright. Jacob is saying, I don't want it that badly. If it's the difference between life or death, you can have it. And this hugely lavish gift that's been traipsed out in front of him now that's going to receive Esau is effectively Jacob's attempt to give the inheritance back or something large enough that it's, it's similar, it's, it's representative of the inheritance. The problem for Jacob here is that he is repenting of the wrong thing and he is repenting to the wrong person. First, he's sorry for the wrong thing. He believes that Esau is upset at him for taking away Esau's birthright. But Jacob has nothing to repent for there. Nothing whatsoever. Jacob was supposed to have the birthright. Esau, if you remember, sold the birthright in a legitimate transaction. Esau was not a victim. Esau had no claim to the birthright in the first place, and he abdicated any claim he might have had when he chose to sell it. If Esau is going to be upset at anyone about losing the birthright, he should have been upset at himself or maybe at God for God's decree that it would be Jacob. But in either case, Jacob has nothing to repent about there. Jacob has nothing to be sorry about, at least in terms of the birthright itself. Now, he certainly deceived his father and to some extent Esau. But that deception didn't create the outcome. He's misdirecting his repentance here. And look what he's trying to do. He is trying to seek friendship with the world in order to appease their hatred of him. He's more interested in a strong worldly relationship with a man that we know Scripture says is an ungodly man, an unbelieving man, than he was with standing in the promises of God. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. He says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Beal? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Later in chapter 7 of that book, chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says, therefore, having these promises, referring to the promises of God, having these promises, beloved, Let us cleanse ourselves from all the defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. What Paul says is, you and I have promises from God. Let's cleanse ourselves from any association with what the world offers. Let's live in fear of God, not in fear of the world. Jacob is living in fear of the world. He's living in fear of Esau, and he's not living in enough fear of God. We're commanded to be at peace with all men so far as it depends on us. Paul says that. We're not looking at picking fights here. What we're saying, though, is when you stand up for who you are in Christ, there is an almost inevitable conflict expected. Christ himself said that we would see discord and conflict with the world if we are to be who God has called us to be. When it comes, not of our own making, but when it comes, we live with that reality. 
that our faith makes us enemies with the world. James says this in 4.4. James 4.4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? And therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You don't get stronger language than that in Scripture. So what Jacob should be repenting here for is his dependence on himself rather than his trust in God. That's what he should be repenting for. Not for the fact that he had to take a birthright from a brother who wished he had kept it. The chief sin is that he's committed over and over again is prideful self-reliance. And in his prideful self-reliance, he stirred up all kinds of trouble for himself and his family. So if he's going to go around being sorry for something, he ought to be sorry, not for the hurt feelings of Esau, but for putting God in the passenger seat of his life. That's what he ought to be sorry for. The second thing I said is he's directing his repentance to the wrong person. He's repenting to Esau. You notice the word kafar again. He's sending appeasement. He's sending atonement. He's sending a propitiation to an ungodly man. He should be directing his sorrow to the Lord. He's working too hard to fix the wrong relationship. So often I find this happening in the lives of Christians. This is such a common experience, and I don't know why we don't see it more often. When we suffer with hardships and trials, and I'm thinking especially of ones that come in relationships, we'll work desperately hard to repair those wounds. And it's healthy to seek reconciliation. We, we should be doing that. I'm not suggesting otherwise. We want to make amends for the hurts we may cause or for the discord that exists in relationships. But there is another relationship which must be repaired, which must be healthy first before those other relationships will actually be addressed in a sincere and meaningful way. Our relationship with others is usually a reflection on our relationship with the Lord. Think of Jacob for a moment. Jacob is at odds with his brother because he schemes against his brother. But that scheming itself was a product of Jacob's unwillingness to depend on the Lord, to take matters into his own hands. So if he was a man who was more willing to rely on the Lord, depend on the Lord and not try to do everything himself, that would have had the effect of diminishing his need or his desire to scheme, to deceive, to outsmart his family. He would have been content to sit still and let God work out what God said would work out. And it runs that way in my experience. If we have friendships if we have marriages or other family relationships that are strained or that have been broken for some reason, I want you to consider whether they may be a reflection of our own weaknesses in the relationship we have with the Lord. That something about how we approach the Lord or the disciplines of our walk create in us a blind spot or deficiency that spills over into the relationships we have with other people. And though we want to repair those relationships, and we should, until we get the main problem fixed, it's not likely to be the case that we'll find all the success we want in those other relationships. Now, Jacob is still trying to drive this car of his life with little knowledge that God has already taken care of Jacob's problems. And in a sense, prepared to drive himself off a cliff, repudiating the birthright that God said he cannot repudiate because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And still, all the while, doing things that self-evidently aren't necessary, that God doesn't need him to do. Barely 24 hours after the prayer, He's already given up all hope. Well, since God isn't going to allow Jacob to forfeit his birthright, he has to intervene. And next time we talk through Genesis, next time we meet, we're going to watch God intervene in a dramatic way, a really unprecedented way in all of Scripture, to finally and forcefully impress upon Jacob who is in control, who is driving, who is to follow, 
and that he can always be trusted. Let's go to prayer. And Heavenly Father, we want to follow you, Lord. We want to know your plan. We want to understand your needs for our life, and we want to uh, be obedient in response to what you tell us. But, Father, don't tell us too much. I pray that, Father, because I know in our heart's desire we would want to know everything if it could be possible. But we also know, Father, that with too much information, we're too likely to take control or think that we are. I pray, Father, we would have hearts instead that only seek to hear what you seek to reveal, that are confident in your faithfulness and in your power and glory and in your capability to turn all things to good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And in that, Father, are willing to rest, to be quiet and still in those times when you ask us to to wait, to take bold and courageous actions when you've made the path clear, to give you glory for any results, to be repentant for our flaws and for our failures, and to come back again, Father, ready for the next day. But, Father, along this path, as we seek to be men and women of faith who, in our faith, act according to what we believe, we also know, Father, that you are good, you're gracious, you're kind, and you're patient. And that where we failed in the past and where we may have let ourselves down, if not you, that at least, Father, we know that the blood of Christ has cleansed us from all iniquity and we now stand again ready to serve anew each day. Don't let the enemy beat us down. Don't let him discourage us. Because we aren't perfect. We don't need to be, Father, because Christ was. But we do want to be faithful. And we do want to be good servants. Thank you for the teaching this morning. Let it serve that purpose. And let Oak Hill Bible Church, Father, continue to grow. First in faith, second in number. And then ultimately, Father, to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.